Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I've got Steve D with me. It's the end of another week and we're here to talk about it. Lots of things have been going on in the stock market and in the world more generally. But Steve, how about with you? I've had an interesting week, actually, but outside of the markets for the moment, how's your week been? Not bad, to be honest, Steve. Been really, really busy again. So I think I said last week that um, I basically when I came back to work on Friday, I had eight jobs to do and managed to do three of them because I spent most of it putting up a chair. Well, I actually managed to catch up with all of the jobs that I needed to do by Friday <laughs> this week. So it's actually been quite a positive week for me. We've had a um, um, a work experience um, kid in who, I mean, quite early on, I think it was quite obvious that he wasn't particularly interested in uh, doing what we do. Um, Mainly because he was quite bad at maths, like just like simple, you know, well, what's 10% less of that? And he would just sit and stare at you and like, you know, you could see this, the sands of time turning in his brain. Um, but he, yeah, smart kid, but just maybe not ma- mathematically smart is what I would say. So he's probably not going to get the, uh, you know, not going to, not going to enjoy it. But what we did do is we took him out a couple of times on site. We're not supposed to, but we took him out because he seemed like a more of a practical lad you know we never mm-hmm. put him in any danger we only sent him to stuff that was like you know ground floor with no builders on it and things like that and uh and he actually came up and he went you know what i think you've you've helped me figure out what i want to be he said i think i want to be like an electrician or a plumber or something somebody out who's out like on the road fixing stuff and doing doing that so at least he got that out of us you know what i mean which is something uh he left early for a driving uh lesson on friday because he's a he's a bit older work experience and we didn't see him again so uh, thank you i guess (laughs) yeah he's busy starting his own plumbing electricals business now that he can drive why not why not he learned more than us steve yeah i mean you're um uh, inspiring the next generation steve of um tradespeople i mean admittedly by boring them with maths and getting them to decide they want to do other things but yeah uh, this that feel good um I mean, he didn't spend very much time with me, so I can't, I can't claim any, uh, <laughs> uh, any, any. Normally they do. Normally they're like, they, they just come upstairs and they're like him, and you like end him, up with a f- that guy yeah. from the playing footsie show. Yeah, you end up with a full week though of not really getting anything done. But you know, when when they came up with the work experience, I was like head down, look at all these files I've got all over my desk. Do you know what I mean? And and they, yeah, they gave them to uh, the fella in the corner who. Uh, who grumped about it the whole time, really. Yeah, and then sent him out on a site visit somewhere. Yeah, sent him out to, <laughs> to his death. Yeah. Uh, here you are, do some complicated maths. Not not that complicated maths, but do some maths that you don't like. No? Okay, fine. Off you go to the site then. The worst thing he did, right, is they, they got him writing down the dimensions. So one of the fellas was measuring, and he got him to write it down. And rather than draw... There was two plots up the same, but rather than draw the one next to it, he drew one set of measures in green, and the other set of measures on the same plan in red. Huh. Now, when you're quickly trying to edit a drawing to make it match, oh my fucking god! I kept referring to the wrong color, and they were different. And it was like, oh, it's like don't ever do that again. I know you're not going to work in this sector, but don't ever do that again. It's, the worst part is, is that my boss is colorblind, so he'd have been like, why have you written both of these in grey? Yeah. <laughs> So am I. Uh, red, green, colour blind as well. It's really annoying uh, when oh, certain yeah. shades of red and certain shades of green kind of uh, come together like that. Nightmare. Um, uh, my week's been interesting too. Uh, I was off visiting my parents on Tuesday and as I sent a picture to um, Steve, the, the police showed up outside in like a particularly quiet part of Abingdon where the estate agent who was showing them around when they were looking to buy the place said, I think quite truthfully, to be honest, nothing ever happens around here. Uh, it looks like it's mostly full of people who... Um, are frankly fed up with being in places where there's loads happening. But no, the police showed up. I thought it was because they'd heard about my parents' planter, and this is a thing, re-carpet their bathroom floor. Um, so they bought a, uh, they've managed to find, I think, the only 
residential property in Abingdon or any property in Abingdon that has a carpet in the bathroom um, to go with the carpet bathroom they've just been leaving. And they thought, yeah, we need to change this. Good, correct. Uh, and the guy who's sort of overseeing some of their work going on at the moment said, what, what are you thinking to put in there? And they thought, more carpet. Uh, and I assume that was why the police had showed up, to be honest, to try and put a stop to this nonsense immediately. But no, they were dealing with some sort of trivial car theft and uh, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, Steve, why, why do people do these things to their bathrooms? You, you know about houses. Yeah, this is just, that's just a recipe for disaster, that isn't it? Having a mm-hmm. permanently sort of like slightly wet bacteria filled carpet is just not that's just not the right way to go ahead. No, they've rightly decided that they want to get rid of someone else's slightly wet bacteria filled mm. carpet. Smart move, that uh, fair play and. Uh, I don't mind buying the right house, by the way, if it happens to come with a carpeted bathroom, that's a thing you can change uh, about it. But the idea that you would get to that thought and then say, yeah, what should we put in here? More carpet. Um, I, I didn't realize people, uh, they've been advised against this, by the way, by several people, including me. I wonder what happens when you go to a kind of uh, carpet shop and say, where do you keep the bathroom range uh, or something like that? Do they have a fluffy toilet seat as well? They do not have a fluffy toilet seat. Because they always fill me with dread. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, they don't have one of those. I think my mum would probably go for one. My dad would look at it in disgust, but think it was probably the kind of thing he would trade away to get what he wanted on something else somewhere, basically. So I don't think he would stick his foot down on that one. But both of them are pro bathroom carpet. Uh, I remember when they redid their old house and yeah, recarpeted the bathroom. Uh, it fills me with dismay, but at least that's a way I can improve the thing when they're when they're gone. Their house is, by the way, built in the nineties and looks like it's pretty much still all original, basically. So, in need of an update, but um, it, it takes various different styles, I guess. Uh, mm. The bathroom carpet thing is an absolute hard no uh, mm. for me. It's arguably one of the worst things that anyone's ever done in Abingdon. Yeah, I agree. How's your portfolio done this week? Uh, it did quite well until Friday when it took a step back, uh, but that still leaves us doing reasonably well uh, this week. It's it's mostly up for reasons that I'm not entirely sure about. Probably something to do with pounds rallying, uh, pounds sorry uh, weakening. But um, in general, things have moved forward in my portfolio. We're up a few, uh, I think a few percent actually. Uh, how about yours? Yeah, same. Uh, about one point two percent, I think overall, because it was quite a big pullback on Friday mm. for me. It took it. Uh, down about 800 quid on the day, so quite a significant jump back down. Um, but yeah, I've had decent weeks on things like Adyen, Steve, which which seems to have slowly stopped collapsing in price. Um, Airtel Africa's had a really, really, really good week as well, so um, that's gone from recently about a 10 or 12% negative to um, about 4 or 5% positive, so... Uh, it's quite a big swing in the last couple of weeks. I've noticed um, things like Kering and things like that. Even Walt Disney, Steve, has started to uh, move up. I think it's about $5 off its bottom. So um, all looking pretty positive again at the moment. Um, bit of a jump back on, on, on Amazon as well. But it was, um, was it triple witching on Friday. That, that was the, the the end of the options and um, rollovers strategy, etc. wasn't it, at the end of the week. So I think that's what caused the, the majority of our you know, we're guessing that's what caused the majority of the fall, but it was a good week up until then. Yeah, uh, interesting week. Um, not much to be done buying and selling wise on this side. I got my realty income dividend, which trading two one two process very efficiently. Actually, that particular one, uh, and then and then put it back where it came from. I think if you leave out the realty income stuff, I mean, if you leave out the stuff that's down, everyone's portfolio is up. But um, if you leave out realty income as the thing that I said I'm basically blindly reinvesting into and it used to be a premium bond and it's now become a REIT fund, um, I think my portfolio is green. Uh, if you include realty income, it's not. But uh, And therefore, that means it's not. But that's pretty much the only thing I did was um, edge my way back into that one at a slightly lower price than um, I was buying it for before, which feels okay. Yeah, the only thing, I did one thing, and it was on Friday, I bought... Um, no, Thursday. This is also I- Friday. Oh. Thursday, I bought one share of Adgen at something like 701 or 695 or something like that. So um, that was the only thing I did uh, all week. So a bit of quiet one for me. Uh, yeah, so here's where we've done well, though, uh, Steve. We should probably congratulate ourselves, right? Last week, we were busy writing off the England cricket team um, after some, some fairly galling initial one-day performances against New Zealand. Uh, hard to see how they were going to turn that round, we said. Uh, you're welcome, Ben Stokes. 
And that was a brilliant knock as well, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. incredible. Well, you say what was a brilliant knock? It was the best knock that I think we've had for uh, uh, for an England uh, cricket. I think it was that was the one day international record, wasn't it, from Stokes? So, yeah. Um, hundred and is it one hundred eighty eight? Did it one hundred eighty two? It was, wasn't it? I thought, yeah, I had it before. I had one hundred eighty six, but around that area, and he yeah. was he had about five overs left. He was on for two hundred if he wanted to just coast in, but um, yeah, well, he certainly wasn't coasting, was he? Uh, uh, not 50, on his DNA, right? 15, why would you? Fifteen fours and nine sixes, um, but. Uh, overshadowing Malan a little bit who batted a lot more sensibly and scored really well and then in the follow-up test uh, Malan really really shine uh, Sean and mm. 127 off 114 I think it was um, yep. was that yesterday or was that the day before that was yesterday uh, uh, yesterday, yesterday and that sealed the series sealed the series what I know it was a really good innings by Malan if you're into your cricket and you haven't watched it watch it everything's well nearly everything's along the ground and through yeah. cover it's proper shots proper, yeah proper shots apart from that sort of wafty leg side shot he does but he tends to hit that one for six and he really does leather it when he hits it whereas Stokes mm. is brute force Malan is your, is, your, is your stroke man but one of the things I have noticed Steve all the way through the series Rooty is really struggling he is just struggling for form a little bit, isn't he? And he's he's a hard one, right? You kind of feel like he's the place is there and it's his for as long as he, he kind of wants it, mostly because of who he is. And the fact that he is, in general, a very, very good accumulator. Uh, and there's a good role for that in certainly anything other than T20, maybe in T20 as well, if you have the right people around him. But in the one-dayers or the tests, he very much has the kind of he's a nice balance uh, to that side he is the kind of person you can bat around but he doesn't just uh block up an end basically he's he's busy scoring and freezer likes the stokes to do the things that stokes can do and when it comes off it's spectacular and it won't always but when it comes off it's it becomes a real issue for other teams to deal with whether that's new zealand australia whoever i think they said uh in the um match before this one that was five straight uh, one day international single figure scores for Root. It's the longest he's ever been, mm. uh, and only managed twenty nine in this. But at least it's a sign of um, a little bit, you know, looking a little bit better. Um, but it is. We'll, we'll see with Root. I think Root's one of those people when when he tends to look like you're thinking just a, you know, maybe drop him. Maybe he needs a little bit of time in the counties just to get some form back. He tends to go in at two hundred and fifty in like two hundred balls, and and he does it, you know, majestically without you know completely chanceless. So. Let's see. Yeah, he's another Milan type, right? Mostly along the floor, proper cricket shots. Looks like he it looks like a, just a really good cricketer playing that yeah. format of the game. Yeah. But and, on the yeah. flip side, Yorkshire could really do with him at the moment. We really Yorkshire, could for his bowling, yeah. I think. Uh, they could do with him for anything. Uh, yeah. I mean, everyone else got a bowl at Yorkshire, didn't they? Earlier this week, you were showing me. Uh, you showed me that Yorkshire had used, I think, ten bowlers, and I yep. pointed out that Warwickshire had opened the bowling with their wicketkeeper. It's that time mm. of year. Yeah, everyone's doing silly stuff. I, I was just dismayed with Yorkshire to to get five hundred runs and then bowl the the um was it Glamorgan or Gloucestershire? It's Gloucestershire, wasn't it? Gloucestershire who are down there with them, I think. Yeah, down there with them, bowl bowl them out for a couple of hundred runs. You think this one's in the bag here for the for the not to wrap that up with two days left was a, a an absolute disaster. Mm, Warwickshire are slipping into mid table obscurity. They had a contrived game against uh, North Ants where they. They lost a day to rain, I think, in a match that was progressing slowly anyway. Uh, so they agreed to sort of um, scrap the end of their first inning short, let North Ants post a total, and then Warwick try and chase it, which was... I've seen these kind of contrived games before. The one I saw was uh, Middlesex against Yorkshire at Lords when um, they were both battling for the title, as it was. And if that match was drawn, Somerset would take it. Uh, Middlesex won in the end as Yorkshire were chasing... Uh, that was a really good finish, actually. Toby Rowland Jones with a hat trick to win the championship. Uh, it's on YouTube. Yeah, I remember you that. Yeah, want to watch that? It was a really, really good finish, actually. I enjoyed that immensely. And there's always an understanding in that that if you're the batting team and someone leaves you a sporting chase, you keep going, even if you get bowled out. Right? You don't try and close that up for a draw because you're eight down and seventy short or something. You keep batting. You keep trying to get the runs. If you get them, you get them. If not, you lose. That's your season, uh, yeah. basically. But North Ants did lose that, having nearly bowled out Warwickshire to win it. And uh, I think having lost, I think that probably puts them nearly down uh, now, North Ants, who I'm surprised they're in Division 1 anyway, to be honest. I didn't have them as that strong of a county. Gloucestershire are the surprising one to me down the wrong end of Division 2. 
been a lot of draws this year, Steve. Though uh, that was one of the things I, I've been a bit. I mean, the weather's been shit, hasn't it? But mm. there's been a lot of draws. I think Glamorgan have drawn eleven out of their thirteen games, which kind of makes you think. I still don't really fully understand why County hasn't pushed to five days like tests because it's better practice for people who you eventually want to go and be test players. So I just don't. I don't understand it. I think. This is like one of the reasons the sport doesn't catch on in, you know, in places where cricket isn't a national sport is because nobody likes a draw. You tell the Americans that you know this team's played thirteen games and eleven of them end up in a draw, and they'd be like, "Well, you know, you don't mind, I suppose, if you're drawing games and finishing high at the table, but Glamorgan are finishing straight in the bloody middle as well. So <laughs> it's just, I don't know, rubbish." Yeah, I, 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 with you on that last point, right? It's the, it's the thing that people that gets cricket a bad name. It's going away in Test cricket for two reasons. One is it's longer than five days, and the other is actually people are taking sort of fairly aggressive approaches to uh, Test cricket. Baseball won't generate many five day games. The only reason they'll go into a fifth day is if they lose part of the uh, the earlier ones, which definitely can happen. But you will generally see results in Test cricket these days. There's an emphasis on attacking from both sides. In the duck, county duck game, with Lewis as well. Duckworth Lewis helps with that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in the county game, though, it is kind of different, isn't it? It feels like it's sort of it's still a bit ploddy uh, in uh, the four day stuff, and they there's excitement elsewhere. The blast gets people excited uh, to an extent. My favourite format is the one day format because long enough to be um, some some properish cricket, short enough that you will see a result on the day unless it rains. That happens. Um, but yeah, I, it feels like that's still kind of working its way along a little bit. Four day cricket, which, as you say, is the the breeding ground for Test cricket in in sort of ninety five percent of cases. That's still got work to go, I guess. Um, so so let's uh, let's try and write that off, shall we, and see if we can recover that as well, given our stellar efforts so far at predicting things for hmm. um, uh, cricket this year. What have you consumed this week, Steve? This week, I've been consuming a lot of stuff, actually. But I, the thing that really caught my eye this week is uh, an email uh, that I get. So I'm subscribed to a mailing list, um, and it's it's run by a company called Industry Dive. I recommend this to you uh, wholeheartedly. So if, like us, you like investing in individual stocks and individual companies, you should probably know something about the industry that they're in. And I think subscribing to Industry Dive and reading the stuff that comes in is probably one of the best ways of going about figuring out how that industry works and um, what the various companies in it are doing that I can think of. So there are a lot of these different dives that they send out. I'm subscribed to a few of these. They send out emails, I think, pretty much every day. I do not have time to read these every day or anything like every day. But I use them as uh, a couple of things. One is to get a general feel every so often, and the other is to find out specific things about companies that I'm invested in. So as an example... This week, Citigroup announced a large restructuring. They're basically taking out a layer of uh, management and spreading out their stuff across some different divisions. Uh, it makes more sense to me, actually. I like the way they're going to report that. And it probably also cuts some costs because they've uh, lost a layer of management. And um, I think through retirement or moving on and decided they're not going to replace it, they're going to restructure around it. Okay, uh, but I found out about that through the banking dive email, which I get. And I found this explains things pretty well, both in this case and in, in general. Uh, if you think about some of the emailing stuff that we tend to uh, be subscribed to, stuff like Morning Brew and Finimize and so on, it's probably a, a level up from that in terms of detail, seriousness, uh, and depth. So it's it's a touch harder than that. It's not quite as fun of a read, but it's probably going to get you slightly better uh, information in terms of not that this is inaccurate, but it's a bit more complete and a bit better for your general understanding. Industry Dive run a whole bunch of different email uh, subscription services, which you don't pay for, by the way. You just kind of give them your email address. These include Agriculture Dive, Automotive Dive, Banking Dive, Biopharma Dive, C-Store Dive, CFO Dive, CIO Dive, Construction Dive, Cybersecurity Dive, Facilities Dive, Fashion Dive, Food Dive, Grocery Dive, HR Dive, Healthcare Dive, Higher Ed Dive, Hotel Dive, K-12 Dive, Legal Dive, Manufacturing Dive, Marketing Dive, MedTech Dive, Multifamily Dive, Packaging Dive, Payments Dive, Restaurant Dive, uh, Retail Dive, Smart Cities Dive, Supply Chain Dive, Trucking Dive, Utilities Dive, and Waste Dive. 
And that's the end of our show. That's all we have time for this week. No, uh, but um, there's lots there, right? So if you are interested in any of these industries, there's a few there that kind of really stand out to me. If you if you feel like I do, for instance, and I don't actually do this, but if you feel like you'd really like to understand cybersecurity because you think that's kind of the up and coming thing, and you want to know what's going on in that industry generally, rather than occasionally just listening to the old earnings report or Steve and me talking about it. Uh, cybersecurity dive would be the place I would start looking at this. I'm convinced it's too hard for me, so I haven't yet. But uh, I've been consuming some dive stuff uh, this week. Not waste dive. That sounds to me like um, that that process that was called freeganism like quite a while ago, where you basically eat food out of bins. Um, there's also a thing in Oxford, by the way, there's a complete side point to this that calls itself waste to taste, which to me sounds completely like cooking rubbish, uh, which I am not a fan of. It sounds like eating rotten food. Anyway... Uh, industry dive and specifically banking dive is what I've been looking at uh, this week and consuming with um, and reminded of the fact that I think this is very good and enjoy it a lot. Steve, what about you? Uh, I've got three things this week, Steve. Um, so the first one is the Financial Times Behind the Money podcast. Um, uh, there's a series up at the moment that they're putting up and it's called The Russian Banker. Uh, I've watched the first two parts, uh, well, watched, I've listened to the first two parts, and the third one has just gone live, I think it was yesterday, so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot at the moment, it's really, really interesting, and uh, I think you will too. Um, the second one on my list is, um, it's a Twitter and uh, I think the Substack um, uh, account called Wolf of Harcourt Street, and they have done a full dive into Adgen and an investment thesis. Which, if anybody is on the sort of fence or just feels like they don't understand it or perhaps don't understand what the differences are, uh, this is a really, really good in-depth article that you can get through in about you know fifteen twenty minutes, and and you'll have a much broader understanding of the company. Uh, and the last thing, Steve, was something I sent to you midweek. It was Chabaf getting absolutely clapped on Twitter, which uh, you just you just can't. There's just nothing better than that. But he tweeted out, Chabaf, uh, you can't make this up. Number one, Baidu raises billions from every name brand investor you can think of and becomes valued at more than 20 billion to disrupt the education system, first in India and now globally. Two, they use the money to go on an M&A spree, a hard strategy for any company to do well, um, sorry, to do well, let alone a fast growth tech company. Three, in June, their auditors quit and three board members resign. Four, a creditor sues them to get 1.2 billion back. Five, now it turns out they may have transferred 533 million to a hedge fund run by a 23-year-old whose 2020 SEC filings listed in uh, listed as an IHOP in Miami as their office address. So Chris Backer, who uh, works for um, Twitter, or X, uh, he just tweeted back, you can't make this up. Number one, Virgin Galactic raises hundreds of millions from brand name investors and becomes valued at more than 20 billion to disrupt space tourism. Two, they use the money to do flashy partnerships with brands like Under Armour for the fabrication of space suits. Three, in 2022, their chairman, Chamath Palahapataya, quits. Four, in late 2022, the company is hit with a fraud lawsuit. Five, now it turns out that Palahapataya profited 315 million in stock sales and Richard Branson sold 1.4 billion in stock before the stock declined 96% from its 2021 highs. So completely ratioed, uh, Chamath is the, that's what the kids call it, Steve. And uh, how, well, you know, Steve, how did Chamath respond? Uh, he had a massive sulk because he's Chamath and that's kind of what he does. Chamath routinely reminds me, by the way, that Kathy Wood isn't all that bad uh, from what I can see of it. I think I think Kathy Wood at least sincerely believes the stuff that she um, says. There's a fair bit of salesmanship in there and so on. But if there was someone who uh, you could hate more than, um, than Kathy Wood, it's probably Chamath. But don't say that, otherwise he'll block you. Yeah, block the guy, and I think one of the features of being a Twitter blue person is you can hide the replies, so he also hid the replies from his, his followers as well, Steve. Yeah, uh, very, very chamath, isn't it? I was looking yeah. at how his four SPACs have uh, gone. I was looking at their most recent share prices. I think they all came on at $10 or so and then had a little run-up and then have nearly all gone down. So far, it's doing okay. It's at $9. Um, that was, of course, peak SPAC boom and so on. So, you know, 10% back from where you started on there maybe isn't the end of the world. Fair enough. Uh, Open Door is now at three, Virgin Galactic is at two, and Clover Health is at one. Uh, so if you bought a nice Chamath SPAC ETF, you're probably well down. 
I think Ch- uh, Metro Mile as well was another one that's now gone, Steve. But Metro oh, Mile, uh, yeah, was um, was gifted to Lemonade for a dollar a share, I think, Oof. or even less than that. So uh, that was a ninety ninety odd percent loss for for investors. Strong stuff that from uh, from Shamat. Uh, mm. So yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, with the exception of um, uh, you really or you enjoying Shamat whinging, uh, and then uh, the kind of wild hypocrisy of it all. Uh, mostly kind of stuff that makes us feel a bit cleverer uh, this week than that we kind of like. I feel like I know more about various industries because I read these emails. You felt like you learnt a lot from the Twitter Substack um, uh, thing and also from that very corrupt-sounding uh, video that you recommended. It, it is really good. It's it's strange because you start off straight away with being like, okay, uh, this guy is telling the truth and, you know, you know the Russian authorities are out to get him and then it sort of twists and turns through... Um, through episode one and two, where you start to think, hang on a second, is this guy, do you know what I mean? Is this guy having his on? Because I think, especially with what's going on at the moment, you have this massive bias towards Russia, where the minute you hear, you know, man fleeing the country, you think, well, he's probably done something virtuous and just, and he's fleeing the country because, you know, he's being, you know, Outing some baddies. Yeah, he's been outing some baddies. Or he's, but but in this occasion, and like I said, I've yet to listen to three. I'm still on the fence about how this one's going to unwind because I have a sense that the authorities are on to him and it'd be interesting to see just how it develops and what they what they find out. Don't spoil it down below if you happen to know, but the Russian banker is the, what that was called, sorry? That's right, yep. Cool. Uh, so plenty to check out there. We'll pop some links down below. That's what we've been consuming this week. As always, if you've been consuming anything interesting you think is worth sharing, we'd like to hear about it as well. But um, should we get on to talking about Monzo, Steve? Let's do it. Okay, so uh, Monzo, a company that both Steve and I own but is not publicly traded, or we own shares in anyway and is not publicly traded, has started getting itself into the investment game by the look of it. Uh, they've launched some new Monzo Invest products. I had a little look this morning. It invited me to join the queue. It said get to the front, be the first in line. And then it told me that there were 216,216 people in front of me in that line. So it's a sort of weird definition of the front, but I'll get there eventually. I haven't joined it yet, but they're effectively offering three new products from what I can see of it. They are various investment products that are powered by BlackRock, they are all essentially funds of funds, mixtures of stocks and bonds, depending on your personal risk tolerance. We'll come back to what they are in a second via Steve. But broadly speaking, their kind of high risk uh, fund of funds is 99% equities, um, 1%, I don't know, maybe cash. But um, the middle mid-ranging one, I guess, is sort of roughly two to one stocks to bonds in a ratio. And the bottom one, I think, is about 20% uh, equities for the, the most most defensive, least risky and so on. Uh, these are sort of interesting products. It's not quite a sort of 212 style pick your own just yet, uh, but there are ways that you can now at least invest through Monzo. Um, Steve, what, what are all these products? You have more on this than I do. Yeah, so um, I guess this is Monzo's take on trying to be a robo-advisor of, of, of a sort, but it's not um, robo-advice. It's it's basically sticking you into uh, BlackRock's equivalent of the uh, life strategy fund. So if you think of these as maybe life strategy 100, probably something like life strategy 60 and something maybe like life strategy 20 or maybe 40 it's it's in between in in between those uh, but these are blackrock's my map series so if you pick adventurous you'll be in a my map 7 fund which is uh um all uh all stocks essentially it has a six on the risk score out of seven so it's it's fairly risky and then the balanced one is five my map five and the uh, cautious one is my map three so uh, i reached out to um to Monzo to try and get a little bit more information out of these funds and just see um exactly what their makeup is uh they are all the esg versions of these my map funds steve which we can which I guess goes with Monzo's clientele to a, to a degree. They are all the accumulating versions of the funds, and they are all um, they are all um, GBP uh, in, in currency as well. So um, you know, hedged or, or or converted. So hopefully, in that regard, uh, not not too many wild swings in uh, in FX. At least not ones you'll see anywhere. So. One of the things I spotted, though, is that, and what I know from the MyMap funds, Steve, is that they have an entry charge of 5%, uh, which is a pretty hefty entry charge. So I reached out to Monzo and I said, look, these MyMap funds, I know for certain, have an entry fi- uh, an entry charge of 5%. I've got the 
the, the key information um, documents here. And they said that BlackRock are actually waiving that charge uh, for Monzo investors. So the fees you'll pay are essentially 0.14, which is what the MyMap ongoing charge is, which is a very low charge. But then you'll pay Monzo 0.45, which is quite a heavy uh, kind of charge. And you would have hoped that Monzo would have maybe gone a little bit lower. I don't see how this affects Monzo. There's not really any kind of... Um, I don't see where the costs for Monzo are, if you know what I mean. They're almost just being, you know, just shoveling money onto BlackRock. So uh, that basically means that sort of for every uh, 10p that you pay to BlackRock, you're going to pay 30p in charges to Monzo. So it's um, it's a lot, Steve, but I could see this, for for beginner investors, I think I can see this catching on. I think it's a pretty good move. I think it's a sort of catching up move uh, from Monzo. I think I've seen a few of these things around in various places before where you can put things into the... It's how I got started, actually, with... Uh, I think it was Moneybox or something, uh, a bunch who had a, a set of funds that you could put your your cash into and they would go off and invest it for you into their either high-risk, medium-risk, low-risk um, set of things. I think NatWest also does something similar where you can, quote unquote, invest uh, through their kind of app and platform and so on. And again, you can only really put it into uh, funds. I haven't compared the fee structures on either of these with, with Monzo just yet because it doesn't sort of massively, massively appeal uh, to me. But I think I, I think I see it as a good thing uh, that Monzo's offering it, especially if they can use it to, to try and skim a bit of cash. So if you want to do your investing and pay Steve and me for the uh, privilege and do it, we wouldn't particularly, I don't know. I'm not sure I would recommend that anybody uh, did that rather than picking your own funds um, and going like that. But if there's people that's good for, uh, then then great. And I'm, I'm sort of pleased to see Monzo catching up to uh, some of its other competitors in this area. Uh, will you be putting anything in there, Steve? No, I don't think so. But um, my wife is thinking about it she she she's not a huge fan of having money in different places and i think that's where i got the idea that this might actually end up being a good move is because i assume if she thinks it, there's probably a few other people who would kind of like to have the money all pulled together or at least be able to see it in one app rather than like i've got nine or ten steve like where our savings are kind of dashed all over the place and premium bonds and and things like that and it's only going to get worse when the baby comes along because um i might end up with a hargreaves and a fidelity account as well so oh, wow. um so i'm i don't know i think i think it's a good move i don't see how how it hurts monzo if you know what i mean i think it's a it's even if only a few people sign up i think it's going to be a, a, a sort of a, a net positive for them so um You've got to be impressed with the way Monzo is heading recently. His pivot to profitability has been uh, has been very good, and um, I think this is just another step on the way to uh, eventually doing that. Did you get the letter at the weekend? Monzo is changing to a hold co as well. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay, you should maybe that'll be in your inbox somewhere. But basically, mm-hmm. they're they're doing what most companies do when they start to think about international expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, they're you're gonna stop holding Monzo the bank and you're gonna start holding Monzo the hold co, and yeah. then they can obviously make more versions of that company and and send it out worldwide. Cool. Um, just thinking back to the investment thing, you said at the beginning you don't think that we're the kind of uh, the target market for this, and I agree with you. I think it's aimed at much more kind of beginning investors or people who are thinking about investing uh, without really ha- trying to figure out what it kind of all involves. And this is where I thought the real standout stuff from Monzo came, by the way. So if you are targeting kind of beginning investors, people who tend to keep their money in cash and are thinking, well, I've heard about this thing called stocks or whatever. Um, and everyone in the Western world seems to make their money trading them at the moment. So perhaps I should be doing that too uh, or something, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And I know that I don't know what I'm doing. Obviously, if you're targeting that kind of a market, it is incumbent on you, I think, both legally and morally, and probably it's good business too as well, to try and do some sort of explaining to those people as to what the hell they're actually putting their money in with these things, because it's a perfectly good question there. And so Monzo has these kind of um, three bits of uh, sort of educational things that you can click through onto before you essentially figure out what their thing is and why you might be interested in it. I thought those things are where they add real value here. Those uh, three things they have, so they have an explanation of saving versus investing, what you're investing in, and risk in return. I was massively impressed uh, yeah, by these. I thought they were extremely, extremely well explained. Um, 
in general, I think they are, from what I've seen, the best outside of Tom Morgan at explaining what this kind of stuff is all about, uh, finance-wise. I know he's a friend of the show, so maybe I kind of would think that. And I think his stuff is really excellent on this. I would check that out if Monzo wasn't there. But I thought Monzo did a super job on this. I actually thought on the what you're investing thing, the stocks and bonds, distinction the difference between owning equity i.e part of a company and owning a bond i.e making a loan to a company and none of it um i think that's something that i like i don't want to say professional because they're not professional and i don't mean that as an insult i mean that as a description uh youtubers uh routinely seem to blunder all over the place and just say things about them that just aren't true and say that uh owning equities is like owning a high interest savings account or something or dividend investing is like a high interest savings account it's not um if you uh, get dividends what you get is money from you the business to you the individual it's not the same thing as uh, a savings account where the bank i.e not you um, gives you interest to you, uh, the individual here. They are entirely different things. They are structurally different things. Um, the stuff about what you're investing in with bonds versus stocks, I think there's there's stuff in there that uh, YouTubers in general would want to uh, have a look at. I know not all of them get these things wrong, but there are a lot of mistakes in there. When I think about it and how to present information that I've been reading about and try and say it in ways that people can understand, I was sitting taking notes uh, on that and thinking, thinking, Christ, this is good. Uh, I mean, this is very, very good stuff. Yeah, I think it, that that is one of Monzo's strength is is making things really, really clear. I think there's the old the old adage of uh, making things as simple as you can, but no simpler. And I think that's yeah. exactly what Monzo has done there. So that's an interesting point, Steve, that you've seen. Uh, that's one of my bugbears at the moment about the, the dividend investors saying it's a high interest savings. One of the things you see in the community a lot is people will post up a stock and say, oh, I really like this stock. Here's a little bit of information about it. It's got a 2% dividend yield. And people say, like, why would you get? Why would you have a 2% dividend yield when you can get 5% in a bank? And you're like, that is not the same. Like, you are not comparing anything near to being the same things there. And, and you know, it's like, why would, why would you even make that comparison? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they are not remotely the same. Uh, I was writing about something for, I say for Motley Fool, for me published via Motley Fool, I guess, if we're strictly accurate about these things making sort of roughly that point to be honest there's a reek that i own that has been falling for the last year and by a year ago but I, it's now moved into what i consider to be viable territory uh, and the spread between the dividend yield and the rate the bank of england base rate just call it that for the moment is tighter than it was a year ago um but i think there are good reasons for buying the stock here because i think that bank of england base rate is likely to come off and the dividend yield that i get will stay the same assuming the payments don't go down so but this way, I think one is going to prove more durable than the other, uh, effectively. And that's kind of the way these things basically work. Um, so, yeah, uh, lots of confusing stuff from YouTubers, commenters, posters and, and so on. And I think the Monzo have done really, really well. You'd hope they would, right? They're an actual bank. They're a professional organization. But they are doing better than just not getting stuff wrong. They are presenting stuff in very, very good ways. It would be very easy to give someone a big, boring fact sheet and say, here you are, look at all this stuff with a bunch of stuff that is... True, accurate, not misleading, uh, says what it is. But crikey, you're asking a lot of people to get through that. Uh, I wonder whether Monzo's kind of hook here might be particularly helpful for them in, uh, sorry, Monzo's uh, very good explanation. I think it's basically a reel or a set of reels that I was looking at uh, might be particularly helpful for them in hooking people in. Yeah, I think they're experts at knowing their knowing their customer here. I think they're really, really good at knowing exactly how the customer needs it to be delivered. And it's delivered like a you know, like an Instagram story, isn't it? Click through, here it here is your information. And it's really it is really well done. Um I I was I was pretty impressed with it, to be honest with you. Uh, a number of people on the release were upset that they didn't go out and buy free trade, Steve. Now, out of the sort of two fintechs that we've got, a predominantly decent sized fintechs we've got in the UK. God, I would sooner Monzo bought something like Invest Engine, wouldn't you? The cheaper, better deal, probably a, a, a better load of um, customers and more chance of actually making a profit, I thought, until I realized Invest Engine have just released a SIP, Steve, and they want to charge mm. I think it's eleven ninety five a month for it. Yep, I saw that as well. Uh, my eyes slightly lit up when I saw Invest Engine had launched a SIP. And then I went off it very, very quickly uh, when I saw their kind of fee structure. I'm not interested in a SIP at that uh, level. I don't have enough money to put into it to make it worth it. They're targeting a either uh, – I'm not quite sure what they're targeting. Uh, they're, those fees are way too high. They, you need to be a, a kind of distinctively very, very high net worth uh, client then who thinks, look, I'm going to put in so much into this that eleven. I'm not going to feel an 11 quid. 
um, monthly charge, which means means a lot because you're going to give back most of your government bonus up to a certain point or, or your uh, tax exemption up to a certain point. But you also need to be the kind of person who doesn't just want to put that into, I don't know, Lansdale or something. They have a SIP, I think, um, or various other places that have a SIP and, and just lower fees. Best Engine really reaching. Uh, they're hard to be advertising them at the moment with um, yet another song or something like that. That's the thing, isn't it? Because they're obviously reaching for people with a high net worth. They're obviously trying to get some assets under management on here. There'll, there'll be people who are at, you know, Vanguard and HL and people like that who are getting charged a lot of fees or look at it and say, oh, eleven ninety nine is actually better than what I'm, you know, what I'm mm. getting, and I can buy the same thing. Uh, that's um, that's all well and good, but are you going to move? Yeah, and this is a problem I think free trade has. Free trade has the same problem I think Invest Engine has. Are you going to move your SIP to something that ain't making any money? You know, a company that is basically relying on uh, both of them, to be fair to them, both of them relying on constant investor injection to stay afloat. Would you want to put your SIP there? I mean, your SIP is something that you will quite quickly, uh, if you contribute to it often, take your government bonuses and just leave it in a in an ETF like we all should, um, will quite quickly get above the FSCS limit. And these companies, Steve, they're not, they're not likely to survive. They're not, there's, there's no guaranteed stamp here that these, these companies are going to make it. No, they are the kind of place where you you kind of get interested in where the FSCS level is, right? I mean, I can understand in the case of uh, a lot of other places, you think, well, um, I've got to put it somewhere. I just don't think the FSCS limit is going to apply kind of ever because I don't think they're going to go bust ever. Uh, but, yeah, in some of these cases, it does become kind of tricky, doesn't it? And we're moving into a kind of uh, tougher environment for uh, unprofitable businesses to stay afloat here and uh, future injections of cash are becoming difficult in either direction debt is expensive and if you want to get it out of investors well they have plenty of other decent places they can put their money right now they don't have to go reaching for riskier unprofitable things unless they, they really feel they want to i'm just looking at vanguard now Steve, just to see what the fees are at the moment so i've hmm. got about 45k in vanguard at the moment and my uh fees are £15.10 a quarter. Yeah, so you're way under then. You're about way half what they're paying, right? Yeah, so basically... About I need to... a month, just over five or a month, so... Yeah, so I need to double that, um, double, but basically double the size of that account to get anywhere near that investing into your fees. And that, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's over the FSCS uh, limit there, Steve. Yeah, that's a good thought. So you you would only start saving money if you were prepared to risk it in, in bankruptcy, potentially, mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment, and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot, and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe, and back on with the show. The sucker's going up. Should we talk about some other kind of borderline private investments in the form of ARM? Let's do it. Well, ARM is uh, now, of course, publicly traded as of Thursday. That was the, I guess I want to say, the big IPO. It's the thing that people who were uh, uh, bullish on that uptick in IPOs from last year, I mean, it could have gone down from last year, are kind of hanging their hats on and saying, see, the IPO market is recovering. And there's some truth to that because ARM is a, a big deal and it has IPO'd. Uh, and its IPO went, I think, reasonably well. It came on at $51 and has now made its way up to about $61 in a, a day and a half two days uh roughly um it gives it a market cap of uh, it came on with a market cap of about 54 uh billion that now takes it to i think somewhere in the region of 68 ish uh billion dollars which is quite a significant amount um there softbank uh still uh, the only ipo though i think floated out about 10 percent of arms outstanding shares so they're still 90 percent owners in this um, it's interesting with SoftBank to sort of see how that investment has gone for them because they acquired this, of course, as a, I think it was a former public FTSE 100 um, stock taken private by uh, Japanese Masayoshi Son-led um, investment firm SoftBank. And they bought it back in 2016 at $32 billion, uh, I think. So um, selling it now for, let's say, the IPO price, um, which is sort of 51, gets them a 6.8%. Um, return per year that's that's not terrible it's not earth shattering but um bearing in mind it's probably fallen off a little bit 
the timing's kind of interesting. We talked about this. It's badly timed compared to 2021 when everyone was IPOing everything for God knows what this would have gone for back then, to be honest, all kinds uh, of cash around the sort of Airbnb time. Um, but it's sort of reasonably well timed compared to last year when you probably would have got about eight quid uh, for the whole thing. Um, Steve, what did you think of the IPO? Did you, you, you didn't buy it, did you? I mean, it's it's a tempting kebab play. No, no, no kebab play from me uh, here, Steve. I, uh, I, I left that one. I thought it was already a little bit rich, to be honest with you. Straight, straight off the bat, we're talking about a, a fifty-one billion um, valuation, and it's it's gained another sort of eleven billion since then. So, um, like most IPOs, Steve, we tend to play them for a kebab. But if we're serious about wanting to earn them, we we can just wait a couple of months or wait a quarter or two to see how they how they get on. It'll only take another set of figures like they did last year. Um, and, and with Apple's, um, I don't know if you watched the Apple iPhone 15 release, Steve, it looks like it's going to be another disappointing year for smartphone sales because, I mean, they spent $26 billion on R&D, Steve, and managed to shave a gram off the weight of the iPhone and do nothing else from what I could see. So, um, yeah, I was, I was massively, massively uh, uninspired by the price, I guess. But, it got the price, Steve, and that's all that matters. It got the price. It got what it wanted. Left about 10% on the table, which is uh, maybe 15% on the table, which is not the end of the world. Um, but I think that's positive for the IPO market, Steve. I think we might start to see. I mean, we've seen Instacart. They've been saying that they've been uh, you know, thinking about going public for a while now, Steve, and I think they'll push on with that. So Instacart might be the next one we see. The valuation on that, Steve, has gone from, I think thirty or forty billion to under ten billion, so uh, that'll be an interesting one to push live. I, I've done a really quick and dirty calculation, Steve, while you was uh, introducing it on uh, on there, and this needs uh, well, it's it's around twenty nine percent growth a year for ten years uh, on that free cash flow figure to to be worth its valuation here. I've just done that on the terminal growth rate of three percent and discount rate of ten. Uh, I haven't done any buybacks because um, I've been messing around with for all this spreadsheet and I've added a buyback and di- uh, dilution section to it as well, which is which is blatantly missing. Uh, I don't know if Arm's doing any massive buybacks. I suppose now that they're public, they might do. That's a lot of growth there, Steve. Even if you added a 1% buyback or a 2% buyback, that's going to end up being uh, quite, a, quite a lot of growth. Not insurmountable. But um, with the mobile market being as uninspiring as it is um, and the PC market being down 28% this year, that's quite a lot of growth. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I see them doing buybacks in the sort of near future. I see them as a massive R&D and massive margin company. So you have to put quite a lot in and then try and get quite a lot out and then put quite a lot back in again. Um, I see them as kind of expensive. I was watching uh, Scott Galloway, uh, Prof G Markets, podcasts take on this and they were saying that arm looks expensive compared to other other semiconductors they were looking on a price to sales basis i'm quite sure why because none of these looks obviously like something you should evaluate on a price to sales uh basis these are all kind of serious um, mature-ish companies that i was looking at but uh they said look so you've got nvidia at the moment which we all know nvidia has had a massive run-up call it expensive if you want argue it's not if you prefer but at any rate the price is a lot higher than it used to be that's trading at 37 times uh, sales. Intel is trading at three times sales. Qualcomm at three times sales. AMD at eight times sales. Arm, they said, trades at 18 or was IPOing at around the 18 times uh, sales marks. So might be about 20 by now. Okay, fair enough. So that puts it you know, significantly higher than any of the uh, chip companies just described there that are not called NVIDIA. Um, I don't think any of those three is a decent comparison uh, for Arm, though. Mostly because I don't see either of them as having arms market position, uh, which is kind of nearly, uh, or certainly not their competitive position anyway. They're in sort of 99% of the world's smartphones, and they have nearly no competition in that market for CPUs, um, or, sorry, smartphone processors. Intel have basically given up, as far as I can tell, and said, eh, too far ahead. We're, we're not throwing good money after bad trying to catch up here. Let's go and do other things like manufacturing. They have some kind of competition in servers and GPUs from places like IBM and increasingly NVIDIA and so on. But but they have a market position that I think is a lot stronger than any of those companies I just mentioned. The one I would compare them to, at least potentially, is something like ASML, which has far less, by the way, of obvious competition. They trade at about nine times sales. 
Um, and the margins at uh, ARM are not obviously that much better than the margins at um, ASML. They both have kind of massive margins. They both have quite high R&D costs. I get that one is a kind of machinery uh, business and the other is a, a chip architecture business that you then go and kind of license out and let other people uh, work on. But they're both they're both near monopolies or damn near monopolies, uh, and I would compare them similarly. So I take the point that ARM is expensive um, and flashy and shiny and new compared to other things like ASML, which I think is actually growing slightly faster as well. But um, I'm not sure I'd buy the comp to stuff like Intel and Qualcomm. Uh, they strike me as things that have much more competition and therefore, yeah, I would expect them to trade at uh, lower uh, ratios of uh, whether it's sales or earnings or whatever. I don't really care at the moment. Maybe the reason I didn't choose PE is because Intel is negative. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's probably a better comparison, Steve, because, uh, well, again, it's an IP company, isn't it? So it's an IP company with a with a fairly large moat. So. Uh, whereas I suppose ASML is a manufacturing company with a, a fairly large amount, but it, it is less, it's somewhat less troubled by uh, by competitors. Although you do sense that it's not, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's got the kind of moat that ASML has. I think ASML's got a moat by sort of scale and a moat by owning the, the billions and billions of pieces that go into an ASML machine, and it owns half of the uh, half of those people who manufacture it, and there's only a few manufacturers in the world who can make the mirrors and the lasers and what have you um so yeah i think the it does have a, a um you know a moat to some degree but i guess this is about the, the strength and depth of the moat um and obviously we do know see moats are actually tied to share price as well that's something we've learned fairly recently and the share price goes down the moat evaporates so mm. um i can't wait for coke to half in price and go on twitter and somebody just say well it's just sugar and water do you know what I mean? Yep, yeah, yeah, pretty okay. much. Yeah, so I, I agree with you to a degree, Steve. I think using price to sales is is a a strange point. I, I, I certainly wouldn't be using that when when you've got plenty of free cash flow and you've got plenty of net income to to look at there and actually um, digest it in a, in a in a in a smart manner. It doesn't seem sensible to use uh, just sales because, especially in a time when. Um, sales have been somewhat slower because mm-hmm. the smartphone market is slower. And I actually think the smartphone market may have peaked. Now, Steve, I'm not entirely sure we're going to see that huge growth off the back of it. I think now is about replacement rather than really bringing new people on board. Um, but yeah, I I agree with you. I, I do agree with you. I think that's probably right about the smartphone market being now a case of being at scale and, and participants are looking to sort of take more of the the existing rather than forge out some new part of it to go and move into. Uh, I guess my last thought on ARM comes back to SoftBank uh, a little bit here. So SoftBank's publicly traded. I think it has a market cap of around $65 billion. Uh, I mean, they own 90% of ARM, which um, with ARM's current market cap arguably accounts for sort of nearly all of that. And all you have to do is think, we've been here before a little bit with these uh, types of businesses. Um, Steve, we talked before about Tencent and Naspers, uh, and and Naspers having a market cap that I think at one point was below the kind of market value of its Tencent um, holdings. So in a sense, that looks like a cheaper looked like a cheaper way to go and buy Tencent things, as long as you thought people at Naspers weren't going to do stuff that was actively going to cost them money everywhere else. And if you did think that, then maybe the risk just ain't worth it, right? Because if you think, well, look, we've got we're in positive territory here from this Tencent thing. But we just can't stop wasting money all over the place. Arguably, that might be true of SoftBank. Uh, they just cannot help themselves uh, by but be incredibly highly speculative. Um, Galloway described Masayoshi Son as the worst investor of all time because presumably he's never seen an everything money video. Uh, but he said it's definitely true, um, and I think that's some sort of hyperbole. It's definitely true, though, that the Masayoshi Son um, style of investing is out of fashion at the moment. It's also the Kathy Wood style of investing. Now, Kathy Wood is a different type of operation. She buys shares in companies that kind of already exist, doesn't particularly go out and kind of venture capital fund them uh, in the style of WeWork and say, look, here's a load of money. You need to find ways to spend more money. You need to find ways to build more things. You need to go and do stuff with this money. There's no new money coming in from markets, just grabbing older bits of uh, companies that are already there and funding either themselves or doing it by debt and equity raises that are not for mark. Um, but it's a similar style and it's 
it's around this time and in this kind of environment that we start thinking these people who got lucky on one bet, right? So Masayoshi Son got lucky on one bet with Alibaba. Kathy Wood got lucky on one bet with Tesla, arguably also with NVIDIA, although their record of selling NVIDIA shares kind of means they probably weren't even as lucky as maybe we thought they were. But um, it's about this time that these things kind of go out of fashion a little bit. And I sort of wonder with SoftBank, yeah, even if their market cap kind of came down to level with their, their stake in ARM, would you think this was a bargain because of other things going on? Not really. I don't trust them to not lose money just everywhere, basically. There's a bit of a theory on this, isn't there, in that they look like visionaries, so people follow them. So they get the best investment of the time, you know, the best investment of the decade. And then people think, well, if they got Alibaba, right, or they got Tesla, right, then they must have some kind of insight that I don't have. So I'm going to follow them into this 3D printing thing, or I'm going to follow them into this genomics play. And and that's what I think we see with people like Kathy Wood and, um, and, and Son at SoftBank in that everything they seem to have touched seems to have just attracted the hype, which the hype tends to be the less informed investors and some informed investors just prepared to ride the wave of uh, of the non-informed. But yeah, when the masses of money tend to head in one direction, you, you almost could almost always think this is going to end in disaster. The only one I haven't really, I mean, Alibaba has ended in disaster. That's been a, a disastrous investment for the vast majority of people who've invested in that. NVIDIA, uh, we're about to probably see that that's going to be a di- either a good or a disastrous investment. But um, Tesla is one that has stayed pretty well priced. I reckon it's probably made money for a lot of the people who have invested in it. Uh, not everyone, but a lot of the people who are in it are probably, you know, probably in the green. And that's uh, that's one I still look at, Steve, every day and think, I know we get it in the neck every time we talk about it, but it's just not worth what it is today. It's got to do some amazing stuff to be worth what it what it's going to be worth. And, and I remain unconvinced it's going to do it, which is why I don't own the stock and why people that do own it do, I guess. Yeah, the stuff it needs to do feels to me like um, these Apple headset things. I'm not sure they're really things that are going to get done. Um, but uh, to your point, point you are dead right about this i mean so kathy's call it luck call it judgment call it whatever you like here about tesla here but it is clearly the case that uh that company has made her target price from however long ago it was pre-split pre-everything else uh look pretty much bang on and like she was right and everybody else is right she was right and everybody else was wrong in terms of targeting where that price is going to go um, she appears to continue to want to, to push on that thought and say, yeah, it's got further, it's got further, it's got further. But but her track record on Tesla so far uh, has been superb. Um, her track record on other things has been less good. Her track record overall, well, it's hard to see how anyone who, uh, in the same way as anyone who bought into Tesla is probably up. Anyone who bought into NVIDIA is almost by definition up with that thing at all-time highs. Anyone who bought into ARK is almost by definition down. Uh, and very likely down um, quite heavily at the moment. But um, another feature of these things is we always talk about these things as though we're at the final stage of this stuff, right? When we were in the the time when all this was taking off, it was, see, Buffett was wrong in the end. Uh, Kathy Mm. Wood is right in the end. And you think, well, but it's not the end. Uh, It's not the case that we all shut down all the markets and everybody cashes out now, is it? Uh, Because if it was, then yeah, they're right in the end. Um, likewise now, it's not the case that Buffett was right in the end. Kathy Wood was wrong in the end. She will say when things have ups and downs, this is the down. Uh, and and there's entitled, she's entitled to say, look, look for more ups. Unless she keeps saying stuff like, judge us on our five-year return, because a five-year return has been terrible. But um, the thought is there's still time to go here on this, and people do genuinely seem to think, ah, but now we have reached our final phase. Interest rates go up. Interest rates come down. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, there's always kind of more to go on this um, until such point as you decide I've had enough of investing, I'm going to go and live off the money now. And you should probably keep an eye on that timing-wise. But apart from that, that's what the journey looks like. It's very much like being commentators on the tortoise and the hare race, isn't it? Mm. I think that's that's kind of what we're experiencing. Yeah. If you'd like to see us comment on a tortoise and hare race, write down below. Uh, we, I reckon we could probably do a decent job on that starting next week. Um, but Steve, uh, hares and tortoises and stuff. I'm interested in what happened with Adobe. It looked like it had the earnings of a 
hair and the stock performance of a tortoise, which yeah. I suppose is slightly confusing to me. Yeah, I mean, but he has had a decent year, Steve. So mm-hmm. uh, there is that. So um, let's let's just quickly run down these. So I don't think it needs any introduction. I'm not going to tell you what Adobe does. I feel like you should already know that. And I think we've covered it enough times to to say that. Does it's... AI right? Yeah, AI stuff. And yeah. it is a business that Steve and I really admire. And the reason we don't own it is probably because we're both incredibly stupid and like looking gift horses in the mouth. Um, Adobe's revenue comes from three main segments. It comes from its digital media segment, which was uh, up 11% year on year to $3.6 billion. Steve, this has a 96% gross margin. Uh, digital experiences was up 10% to 1.2 billion. This has a 68% gross margin. And publishing, which is actually a very small arm of Adobe, that came in at just about 100 million, declining 17% year on year, and has about a 67% gross margin. So we topped this up. That's 4.9 billion in the quarter. It's about 10% growth, and it has about an 88% gross margin overall. So very, very strong on the gross side. Uh, up profit, Steve, 1.7 billion. That's about 35% margin. 1.4 billion in net profit. So that's what uh, 29% margin mm-hmm. net. I think very, very strong. Uh, in terms of their annual recurring revenue, the ARR creative is at 12 billion, up 7%. Documents is up 2.6 billion. Uh, sorry, it's at 2.6 billion, up 17%. And remaining performance obligations was 15.7 billion, which is up about 11%. In the call, Steve, they did talk a lot about Adobe Firefly, which was interesting for investors because we've not got a massive idea about. I mean, we had an idea of how they were going to price it, but they actually um, they helped it uh, helped out a little bit and added some sort of flesh to the bones. Um, so their AI generation tool, Firefly, which just coincidentally, Paul was told us is frankly incredible. He keeps sending his image and they do look pretty good, to be fair, has now been opened up to all customers. Uh, it's operating on a token sort of credit basis. So users on certain tariffs will have access to a few spins of the wheel, whilst heavier users will need to buy a more expensive package. Uh, they're also going to sell some fast tokens, which basically have priority over the, the other tokens which sounds like quite a promising way of monetizing it. Um, they repurchased about 2.1 million shares in the quarter, Steve, which I worked out was about a billion dollars worth. Um, and that, they issued about 440 million in stock-based comp. So still, that count is coming down a little bit. Um, stock was down about 5% on the news of this, Steve. I didn't think there was anything terrifically bad in here. Uh, triple witching day, as we said before, and the market was broadly red on Friday. So I think it was a bit of a victim of that. I did some quick and dirty calcs again on this one, Steve. Uh, I think you'll need about a 12% annual growth in free cash flow from here. And a 1%, I'm working on a 1% annual reduction in shares to get about a 10% return. So I think that's probably pretty achievable, Steve. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably about right with those uh, loose numbers. So the buyback comes to, if you run it out for four quarters, about 2% of the current market cap. Some of that comes back the other way again in terms of uh, stock-based comp. Um, Adobe is an interesting company, isn't it? It, Competitors come and competitors go, and Adobe just keeps growing, um, either by price increases or more subscriptions or, or new products or whatever it is. I mean, Paul has been historically quite dubious on this uh, with us. He's decided that various companies are going to come in and and eat Adobe's lunch and why would anybody pay for Adobe's stuff now? And well, back to the previous thought about we're not being at the end of the game yet, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, Adobe keeps moving forward and grinding forward at 10% top line growth. Turning 10% top line growth into 12% bottom line growth isn't that difficult, I think, from that particular perspective. bit they continue to do sort of smart stuff um they're acquisitive which always raises questions over uh, overpaying for acquisitions but they've done it pretty well and i think it's very difficult to argue with um a company like adobe chris hill was positive on this when we had him on like a year and a bit ago now yeah very good at uh, extracting the juice from uh, from a merger everything uh, from an acquisition so everything that looks like it's a little bit um overpriced they eventually make it make it work really so figma is the same thing i think they're they're Mm. buying something here where on the face of it it looks like an incredibly expensive purchase um but uh, i think it's going to be uh well if it's allowed to go through i noticed that the eu and the uk have now uh they're now investigating the uh the merger and the eu have said they're going to do a deep review steve but 
I feel like we were real stupid last year, Steve, when this was like 260 or whatever it was, 208 at one point, I um, I think, or maybe, maybe not that low, maybe 260, 270. But I had this for a bit, Steve, and I, I sold it when it got up into the sort of 350s again, and I feel like that's a, it's a move that's going to haunt me, Steve. I feel like this is a new one to add to the, you know, the list of shit. I feel like I need a list of shame on my wall, like things that you store, you sold at stupid prices. Do you understand, know Steve? Oh, I think I've got enough wall. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't got enough wall, I definitely haven't. Uh, what's it at at the moment? It's uh, oh five twenty eight. Oof. Um, so it's a possibly sort of double, uh, roughly there. Yeah, it's um. It feels to me like the kind of company I buy when I'm in one of my moods of I'm going to buy a great business and not worry too much about the price. Now, there are times where I ought to have bought the business because it's great and not worried about the price because it was too low anyway. But there's a sense in which look great businesses that keep generating high returns on their invested capital, which Adobe absolutely does uh, with margins like that. Uh, they take nearly no capital to run. They just kind of print money out they're the, the model for what we think certain companies kind of could be if stuff goes well in the future running uh, 30 something percent op margins high 20 somethings net margins um when we think optimistically about i don't know Ricardo libra or guidewire software or whatever fancy tech thing we're looking at we think maybe they could be sort of 30 percent like adobe adobe just keeps doing it and it keeps growing and growing and growing um it's uh it's a mighty impressive set of things. The, the dip isn't enough. The dip off the earnings isn't enough to kind of interest you because one of the things that Brian Feroldi always kind of uh, said was, when you're looking at a company after earnings and you're trying to work out why it's gone this way given its earnings, which looks the other way, and it can be bad earnings, stock goes up, good earnings, stock comes down. Just first things first, scroll out a little bit and work out what it did into those earnings, right? So it's had a massive run up into those earnings and the earnings look good but not great, well, then it may be that it comes off because people are expecting higher uh, and so on. That pretty much all that's going on with Adobe here, you think? Yeah, pretty much. Steve, I'm going to call back some credibility, though, before we shuffle on. Because I've oh, sold, Adobe, I've sold, sold Adobe at 4.43 and 75 cents. Then I built up a big stake and sold it at 6.30 and oh. 16 cents. But here's where my credibility is just going to slip a little bit because I then sold some at 3.36. And at three four two six, oh, that was a bad sell. I made a, I made a, I made a quid on that one, Steve. What was I doing? Uh, oh. so sold it nearly flat then somewhere. Yeah, I've sold. Well, I've made big money twice and sold it essentially. Well, one time for a decent bit of money and one time flat. So, <laughs> ah, room for improvement. But you know, you you don't never go broke taking a profit, even if it's only a quid, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just think I should have held on to this. So I think this you is one of those. You get rich by taking a quid. Yeah, but this is one of those stocks, isn't it, from the Brian Feroldi thing where great stocks have volatility but give you mm -hmm. great returns or whatever the saying was. And I feel like this is this is what Adobe is. And even at this price, Steve, I could make a case for it. I mean, PE ratio monkeys who look at 47.62 and say, oh, that's too high. And look at the stock-based compensation and say, oh, that's too high. Well, this is a company that can afford to do these kind of things, Steve. And, and actually, it's free cash flow on the bottom. I suppose we should really be deducting the SBC off that free cash flow when we do the calculation, which is, I didn't do that, to be honest with you. But uh, that makes no, it a little bit No, but you were taking it trickier. off the buyback, weren't you? Uh, yeah, true. So I, you was sub yeah, I was subbing it off the buyback. So I suppose I was not double counting it. So, yeah, I don't know, Steve. I could make a case for it here. I just, I don't know. It's hard to buy something at 528 when you've sold it like an idiot at three, whatever. So. I know, right? I was, uh, I'm finding it hard to buy stuff at like 8% higher than I bought it for not that long ago, but I, I will find a way when I get some money. Mm. Anyway, uh, that's pretty much it for Adobe, right? I think nothing much else to add on that. And that's pretty much it for our show as well. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, pop us your thoughts downstairs, and we will see you next week. Bye for now.